Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Harrington as he shares this week's message. Take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 23. Verses 44 through 49, for those of you who are looking in your Bible and you say, oh, we are almost done. We are completed. We can finish this year. You will be sorely disappointed for we are going to finish chapter 22 next week. And then we are going to save chapter 24 until next year. But today, looking at Luke 23, 44 through 49, the music today was apropos as we think about a wonderful, merciful Savior, as we talk about it is finished, and a little bit later, Jesus the Messiah. Our title today is The Merciful King. I want to share with you a modern-day parable, if I may, written by Jeff Dodge. It's called The Parable of the Merciful King. He writes, once upon a time in a kingdom far, far away, there lived a great king. He was simultaneously the most powerful man in the kingdom, as well as the kindest and gentlest man in the whole realm. The kingdom was known for its peace and harmony and goodwill. Neighbors cherished one another and years would pass without a single crime being committed. One day, however, the chief servant of the merciful king came into the throne room. With ill tidings. Your merciful king, there is a thief in the realm of your kingdom, sire, said the servant. The king was astonished. Find that thief, and when you do, bring him to me. He will be punished with ten lashes. Those in the room were astonished as well. It had been so long since a crime had been committed, they could hardly imagine who would have done such a thing. A week, went, a week went by and the servant again made his way into the throne room. Once again, I have bad news for you, sire. Quietly reporting the news. The thief has not been found and he continues to rob from your people. In anger, the king raised his voice and said, find the thief. And when you do, he will receive 25 Lashes. The people began to murmur among themselves, who could withstand such a punishment? Who could possibly be committing such crimes? As time went on, the servant once again came back again into the throne room with yet another bad news to report. Your majesty, the thief has not been found. We have searched in vain for him. Your people are still being robbed. The king was enraged. Find that wretched thief. And when you do, his punishment now will be 50 lashes. Now the people were filled with dread. They were not even sure the king himself could withstand such punishment. And if he could not, then certainly no one else could withstand it. Who could do such a thing? Soon afterward, the servant again approached the king in his throne room. His face was pale and his voice was timid and hollow as he said, Your Highness, the thief has been found. Bring him to me this instant, cried the king. The crowd that had poured into the throne room slowly parted, revealing the thief who now stood trembling in the middle of the room. To the other shock and dismay of all, it was the king's aged mother. There she stood, trembling and crying. Her small and frail body was shaking with fear 
and shame. She was perhaps the very last soul that anyone would ever have suspected of such a crime. And there stood the king in shock and deeply wounded. The crowd began to wonder and murmur among themselves, what will this merciful king do? Will he set aside the law and display his love and mercy by forgiving his mother for her crimes? Or will he display his sovereignty and justice by giving her exactly what she deserved? Will he choose mercy or will he choose justice? The king raised his hand to quiet the crowd. Bring the whipping post, he said. The crowd was dumbfounded. Would the king truly have his mother receive such a punishment? Even the king could scarcely survive such a flogging. This frail woman would not even last a few strokes. The old woman, his mother was tied to the post. Her garment was rent, torn down, exposing her back to the whip whipmaster. Her ribs could be counted for her frailty. The king said, administer the lashes. And then not a sound could be heard as the whip was raised to strike. But just as the whip master was about to unleash his first stroke, the king cried, halt. The king sighed, the crowd sighed in utter relief, but the feeling did not last for long. As you read with me on the monitor, the king stood from his throne he slowly removed the crown from his head, laying it upon the regal seat. As he began to walk down the stairs towards his mother, he laid aside his royal robe and finely woven tunic. And coming to his mother, he wrapped his enormous body around her, completely enveloping her around his frame. The king spoke. Now, a minister the lashes. Thus, in this one act, the king displayed pure mercy and perfect justice. Now, as you and I read this, it can conjure up some emotions as we think of what Christ has done for us. You and I know that this is not a true story, but it does display a true predicament. The relationship between God and man, God the holy and righteous king who deserves all worship and honor, instead he is rejected by his creation, man. That rebellion plunged all of humanity into sin, bringing the curse of sin of death. Even little Setson there at his age and his littleness and his frailty is still under the curse of sin and death, is under the judgment and wrath of God. You see, God demands justice, but he also loves his creation. What does he do? Well, here in the Gospel of Luke, we read that God the Father sent his son Jesus to take our place, to take the lashes that we well deserved. See, Jesus suffered in our place, mocked, was mocked in our place, was crucified in our place, satisfying both the justice of God and demonstrating his love and mercy. This, as we've seen, was the will of God. Scripture tells us that the Messiah, the anointed one of the Lord, the one that had been promised since Genesis 3.15, would be despised and rejected by men. That he would be pierced for our transgressions. That he would be crushed for our iniquities. And that upon him was the chastisement that brings us peace. 
and that it would be with his wounds that we would be healed. You see, God showed his love and mercy for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now Luke has recorded the suffering and humiliation of Christ by the hands, by the hands of man through the will of the Father. Today, Jesus' suffering comes to an end in triumph as he gives up his life on the cross. Now, last week, we saw the four sets of people who mocked Jesus while he was on the cross. The Roman guards, the pilgrims that were coming during the Passover, the religious leaders, and lastly, the thieves. In today's passage, Luke records Jesus enduring the wrath of God by bearing the curse of sin through his suffering and death on the cross. Luke's narrative of these events prints more evidence proving that Jesus is the Son of God as he reports the eyewitness accounts of the supernatural events and the testimony of a Roman soldier, Roman guard, at the death of Christ. So with that, if you would turn now to Luke chapter 23, and we're going to read there with verse 34, I believe, or 44, whichever number we're on there. Verse 44. Luke writes that it was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Now, this here is the first supernatural event at the death of cross, at the death of Jesus, excuse me. As darkness covers the land of Palestine from noon until 3 p.m. So this is noon. This is not nighttime. We're not talking in the evening. But during the noontime to 3, the whole earth or that whole region becomes dark. Now, this darkness was a supernatural event. It's not just a solar eclipse that would last three hours. There's no such thing. Darkness in scripture is a sign of judgment and displeasure of God towards his creation. However, the judgment and displeasure is not directed towards Christ, but his people, the Jewish people at that time, who rejected their anointed king. Interestingly, Josephus, who is a Jewish historian, writes that the ninth hour, which is 3 p.m., was the time when the Jews would normally offer the daily evening sacrifice. And that's the exact time that Jesus dies. The second natural event comes at the end of verse 45, where it says, while the sun's light failed... The curtain of the temple was torn in two. Now, this is talking about the temple. And now all the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, record this event of the supernatural tearing of this curtain. The curtain separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place. Now, you might recall from our uh, series in Leviticus some time ago is that no one could enter into the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle or the temple or they would die. Even the only the high priest could go in there. And that was once a year. And even then they would tie a string around his ankle that had bells on it so that when he went in and if the bells were silent, they knew that they could drag him out because he died because he was not he was he had not been uh, uh, presented himself in the way that God had called him to. And so this curtain was important. It was a, a curtain of protection for those that were not to approach God. Now, the curtain was enormous and impressive. It was 82 feet high and very thick. It would, it would not be something someone could just take a, a pair of scissors or a knife and just cut easily. 
Dr. Schreiner remarks that the curtain was long and thick and could be only split in two by a supernatural event. This was the first step in nullifying the temple worship. As we have read earlier, soon the temple is going to be destroyed. It would be destroyed in AD 70. Uh, um, With the death of Jesus, the temple and the sacrifices are no longer necessary as those who accept Christ are now have or now have direct access to the father through Jesus, the high priest. There is no longer any need to go into the Holy of Holies or to going into the Holy of Holy or the Holies or even to do a sacrifice. The author of Hebrews encourages here in the monitor, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So the first supernatural event is the three hours of darkness. The second is the tearing, is the renting of the curtain. This third supernatural event, excuse me, <clears throat> occurs when Jesus willingly gives up his spirit in verse 46. Look with me there. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Even his death is a supernatural event. After six hours of torture, On the cross, Jesus dies. It usually took a long time to die. In Mark's gospel, we read that Pilate was surprised to know that he should have already died. Sometimes it would take many, many hours, if not a day or so, for someone to die of suffocation on the cross. But this cry of Jesus is not the one of an executed man. The Greek verb means a loud cry. Usually the crucified one, the people on the cross, had no breath to cry out. As we talked about last week, every breath would be a labor of effort as they would have to move up to take in a breath and then come down to exhale. This is not a gasping man's last breath, but a shout of victory, though not recorded here. He says, it is finished. The Apostle John records that Jesus shouted those words and then he died. In John chapter 10, 18, we see here, though, this is why it's a supernatural event. As we read earlier, Jesus said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own accord and I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up. This charge, he says, I have received from my father. So this is a man who willingly gives up his spirit to die of his own violation, of his own terms. Now take a moment to consider this as we think of Jesus giving up his spirit. The one who healed the blind died. The one who cast out the demons died. The one who calmed the seas, who walked on water, who made the lame walk and deaf to hear. The one who raised Lazarus from the dead, willingly, the son of God, dies. It is finished. Christ's passion has concluded. His torturous ordeal is done. The sacrifice is complete as Jesus willingly gives his life for ours. Proving his love for us. In Mark chapter 10, 45, Jesus pronounces that the Son of Man came not to serve or to be served, excuse me, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
In his cry, Jesus echoes the words of David in Psalms 31, 5, when he said, Into your hand I commit my spirit. You will redeem me, O Lord, faithful God. Jesus willingly gives up his spirit, willingly endures the cross and dies, knowing that he put his hands into the Father, the Father's plan of redemption. We then come to the fourth supernatural event, and that's the testimony of one of the Roman guards. Look at verse 47 as we finish out this passage. In verse 47, Luke writes, Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintance and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. This affirms Luke's message in all of his gospel. Jesus is the innocent and righteous one. We do not know how or why that this Roman soldier centurion came to this decision that Jesus was innocent other than it must have been the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, I am not saying that this man became a Christ follower. We do not know. But in some way, the Holy Spirit confirmed in his mind that he just witnessed the brutal murder of a righteous man. Mark, in his gospel, actually proclaims that when the centurion who stood facing Jesus saw that in this way he breathed his last, gave up his life, he actually said, truly, this man was the son of God. Then we could add, he was an innocent man. So something supernatural was happening in the heart of this man. Just as Peter shouted out, you are the son, the the, uh, you, are, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus responds, man did not give that to you. The Holy Spirit did in the same way the Holy Spirit breathes into this man. What is strange that it was not the relig religious leaders or anyone in the Jewish crowd, but a Roman soldier who recognized that Jesus was more than just a failed rebel treasonous leader. His declaration is not a theological statement of belief or the sign of a regenerated heart, but the exclamation of a man who was hardened by battle, who had just witnessed a very different death. He had most likely attended many crucifixions, but this one, this man, Jesus, was different from the rest. I pray that one day that when we get to heaven that we may meet this Roman soldier and that his heart truly was, was, was regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Luke notes that the crowds who were crying out for the blood of Jesus just several hours earlier are now experiencing remorse at the spectacle. It's in ways not shared with us, they were sorely impacted by what they had witnessed. Expecting to be entertained with a, with a spectacle, they are confused and now distraught over the events they just witnessed. The, description, the descriptive phrase, beating their breasts, is a sign of mourning, though they probably are not even aware of what or who they are mourning. They just recognize that something has changed. Luke closes out this part of his narrative 
by noting that those that were close to Jesus and who had followed him, uh, followed his ministry, stood apart from the crowd, watching all that took place. They, they dare not get too close. It's hard to imagine what was going through their minds and the emotions that were tormenting their hearts as they see Jesus cry out or hear him cry, maybe not even making out the words from the distance, but watching as his head and his body finally go slack recognizing that he is dead. I want to spend some moments, though, considering not how he died, as we did a little bit last week, a little bit this week, but the impact of Jesus' death. Not just on the people who witnessed this horrible event, but in the redemption plan of the Trinity. How does the the death of Jesus that he willingly gives, what's the impact of that? going to give you several of them four of them here very quickly number one at jesus's death blots out sin the bible tells us in first john you know that jesus appeared to take away sins not only does his death blot out sins but it also defeats the power of evil and death as again first john it says the reason the son of god appeared was not only to take away sins but also to destroy the works of the devil But also Jesus' death, as we talked about earlier, opens up us access to God. The author of Hebrew writes in Hebrews 10, he says, Brothers, we now have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. We don't have to be timid. We don't have to put a a rope around our ankles with with, with bells on there, hoping that we don't die when we approach God. But we now, an unrighteous people, a people of, of, of what, what is, uh, as Isaiah say, of untamed lips or unclean lips, we now can approach a holy God. He does, it says, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through the flesh. And since we have a great priest, high priest, over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance with faith, our hearts being sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with a pure water. I pray that you understand that the impact of Jesus' death on you is that if you trust and put your uh, faith in him, is that your, your sins can be blotted out, that the power of evil and death has been defeated on your behalf, and that now you have access to God when you're struggling. You can come before him without fear that he will destroy you. But also... Jesus' death guarantees us the promise of a final resurrection. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, For as by one man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. And though we won't get into it till next year, he says, For as Adam all died, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. He is coming again. For those of us who die in Christ, it says that we will be raised to walk just as he was raised again. But the question is, why did Jesus have to die to do these things, to blot out sin, to defeat the power, to to give us access to God and to guarantee our resurrection? Why did he have to die? Paul Washer tweeted out his answer uh, to that question just this week. He says, why must Christ die? Because God is holy and righteous. Remember the merciful king in our parable? He had to do both. 
Why did Christ die, he asks again? Because God is love. Both questions find their answers in the character of God. He is both a God of justice and righteousness, but he is also a God of love and mercy. The apostle John writes, for God so loved the world that he gave us his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but of everlasting life. You see, Jesus willingly went to the cross and gave up his life because he understands the shame of sin. He understood the pain of sin in, the, in, in a person's life, the desperation that sin brings and that being forsaken because of sin. Wayne Grumman writes that Jesus came as the atonement the atonement, he writes, is the work of Christ or the work that Christ did in his life and death to earn our salvation. So when we say he is finished, when he says into my hands I commit, he understood that what he was doing was atoning for our sin, blotting him out, delivering us from the penalty of sin and the power of sin, and one day from the presence of sin. Jesus willingly went through this so that you and I could have life. Now, Christ accomplished this in two ways, his active obedience and passive obedience. I know some of this is redundant. Many of you know these things, but it's good and important for us to, to refresh this in our mind. Even as we celebrate the birth of Christ, here we are talking about the death of Christ. Number one, Christ's passive obedience grants us forgiveness of sin. You see, Jesus took upon himself the suffering of taking on flesh. That's the incarnation that we're celebrating during this season. He became a man, a human. He allowed himself to be tempted by Satan, the creature who rebelled against the holy God. Hebrews tells us that although he was the son, the son of God, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Just imagine the holy, omnipotent, all-knowing God, allowing himself to receive such treatment from his creation, the mocking, the ridicule, the beating, the rejection. The very one who created each and every one of those. I love, I, I can't remember which uh, reformer said it, but the very cross that Jesus was nailed to grew from a tree that he himself created. Not only the temptation from Satan, but also the mocking, the beatings, the ridicule, the humiliation Jesus suffered for us. That's why we call it the passive, because it's something that he received without doing anything to deserve it. He experienced the pain of loss. He experienced physical pain and the pain of an innocent, perfect being bearing the sins of others. Isaiah tells us that the Lord has put on him the iniquity of us all. And that he bore the sins of many. John the Baptist declared, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I wonder if that time of John the Baptist understood how Jesus would do that. He suffered abandonment from his disciples in the intimacy of the Father. And if that was not enough, he bore the full weight of the wrath of God. Wayne Grumman writes, seen here on the monitor, I believe, as Jesus bore the guilt of our sins alone. God the Father, the mighty creator, the Lord of the universe, poured out on Jesus the fury of his wrath. Thinking back to our parable, he did not withhold the whip. 
It fully came upon his back. Jesus, going back to here, says Jesus became the object of the intense hatred of sin and vengeance against sin, which God had patiently stored up since the beginning of the world. He paid the debt we owe. Hold that up there just for a moment. I want you to read that and reread that. Understand what Jesus did for you. Let me ask, is there anyone else in your life who would take such punishment for you? Is there anyone who would pay the penalty of your sin, of your anger, your temper, of your disobedience? We might say, oh, well, if it's just a spanking, hey, maybe it's a fine, maybe this or that, but really your body? The full humiliation? The Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. But yet Jesus became our substitute. In his suffering, he not only paid for our sins, but he earned God's favor towards us. So we call this the passive obedience of God because he received it willingly, voluntarily. Not something he deserved, but in it, he received what was due in our body, the judgment and wrath against God. But he also atoned for our sin by his active obedience and through his active obedience that's how he earns our righteousness so through his through his passive we earn forgiveness God forgives us the penalty of God God's uh, justice is favored uh, or is done and now he's satisfied now by giving us the righteousness of Christ you see forgiveness alone does not merit reconciliation with God You see, there's still the problem of sin and God's holiness. Even if he was to forgive us, we'd still continue to sin. And we have to recognize that God's holiness cannot abide sin. God cannot have intimacy with sin. We read in Habakkuk that you, you who are of pure eyes, speaking of God, are, are pure eyes to see evil and cannot look at wrong. So you and I need more than just forgiveness We need God's favor. We need something to make us righteous. The prophet Isaiah writes that your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. You and I are far from God until we come to him. In our natural born state, there is nothing in us or anything that we can do that can earn God's favor. We need to be righteous. Jesus said you must be perfect even as my father is perfect. Yet you and I could not. As much as we try to be righteous, even all of our righteousness have a tent of sinful motivations in them. We are unable to earn any good on our behalf. The Bible informs us that all of our righteousness, all of our good works are as filthy rags. Therefore, Christ had to live a life perfect, a life of perfect obedience to God in order to earn the righteousness for us. As we read earlier, he had to be born under the law, the law of Moses, the 613 commandments, and he had to live under the law. The Bible says if you disobey or you fall in one portion of the law, you fall and fail in all. He had to obey the law for his whole life on our behalf so that the positive merits of his perfect obedience would be counted for us. It would be put on our balance sheet. 
Paul tells us in Philippians, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. In other words, it's not that I've done good by the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ is what sets me up as righteous. Paul would write to the Roman church that as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, speaking of Adam, so one, of, one act of righteousness, speaking of Christ, leads to justification and life for all men. Again, another big word, justification. Justification means that we are declared righteous by God. Not made righteous, but declared righteous. There's a big difference. For he goes on to say, for it was by one man's uh, disobedience, speaking of Adam, the many were made sinners, and by one man's obedience, speaking of Christ, many will be made righteous. In a nutshell, what we see here is that of imputed sin and imputed righteousness. You see, what happens is Jesus on the cross takes all of my sin. You know, take, take this, you know, if this was a list of all the sins that Rob has done, okay? Just speaking of myself, this, this, this probably would not list all of them. Speaking of my attitudes, my actions, and just my very nature. It says that God then took my sin and placed it on Christ. And at the cross during those three hours, all God the Father could see was my sin. As Jesus bore the weight of that sin. But then what scripture says is that then Jesus, then God the Father was not done then. He then took the righteousness of Christ. This isn't pure white, but we'll take it as that. He took the righteousness of Christ, his perfect obedience, and he took it from Christ and he put it on me. So when God looks at me, he doesn't see the sin that's still underneath here. Say it's like this. He just sees Christ's righteousness. So you're sitting here today, but you don't know. You don't know how bad of a sinner I've been this week. Where if you're under Christ, he doesn't see that. He sees Christ's righteousness at all times. That's what it means to become a son of God, to be adopted into his family. He only sees the righteousness of Christ. Now, if you do not have Christ, he still sees you in your sin. See, this is the wonderful gift. This is what we mean, the innocent for the guilty, the atonement. God, the Father, taking our sin, putting it on Christ, but then taking Christ's righteousness and putting it on us. That's the type of Savior we need. That's the type of salvation that you and I require. The Bible tells us that God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, you and I need both forgiveness of sin and the favor of God. Charles Spurgeon remarked of Jesus that Jesus must die or we must die. Or Justice must die. For justice to be done, either I must die or Jesus must die. But justice is fulfilled when Jesus gave up the spirit and said it is finished. This is very good news. At its core, the gospel is the wonderful truth that Jesus is the substitute for sinners. We can summarize the whole by saying that in his life, Jesus lives in perfect submission to the will of God and he fulfills all the righteous standards of the law, all 613 of them. 
And in his death on the cross, he quenches God's wrath against sin, satisfying the sovereign demand for justice. In his resurrection, he is victorious over sin and death. And all of this is done on the behalf of sinners who are in need of redemption. And it's offered to all who would come and believe. This is very good news. This is the gift that you and I are to be giving and sharing with others. John Thorne writes, I think I have this on the monitor, do I? Thank you. John Thorne writes that Jesus' life is good news. For his obedience to the Father and fulfillment of the law is for us. While we as sinners fail to keep the law, Jesus was perfectly faithful. Jesus' death is good news because his death was a payment for our sin. And if we are cleansed from our guilt and released from the condemnation, Jesus' resurrection is good news because his victory over death is ours. And, though it will, and through it, we look forward to the resurrection of our own. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Ephesians chapter 2. This should probably already be highlighted or underlined in your Bible. I'm sure it is. You may even have it memorized. But understanding that all of this is not something that you and I earned by good works, by attending church, by giving money to the church, or just trying to be a good person. This imputed righteousness and the imputed sin to Christ is all a gift. It's a gift. It's a free gift. Ephesians 2, look at verse 8. Paul tells us that it was by grace you have been saved through faith, a confident trust in the person of God. It says, this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It's not a result of works so that no man may boast. But he goes on to say, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works that God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Christ died so that we may live for eternity, so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin. Now here's else where it's good news as we come and take these wonderful truths and apply them to our lives. And I want you to think of the person you think you are, those times when you struggle to look yourself in the mirror in the eye, those times when you feel guilty, when those times when you feel like I've blown it. Dr. Schreiner has good news. He says for you today, he says, no matter how much evil you have done, we can turn to Jesus for forgiveness. Even if we have wasted nearly all of our lives, we see this with the thief on the cross. He repents and the Lord says, today you'll be with me in paradise. I'm afraid there may be some of you that think that you're just too evil. You've sinned too much that God can't forgive you. Let me share with you. If God can save Paul, who is a Christian terrorist or terrorized Christians who put him to death. But then on the road to Damascus, met him in a supernatural way. If he can open up his the eyes and hearts of a Roman centurion who recognized that Jesus was the son of God, then he could forgive you. However, here's the warning. We must not wait until the last moment. I've told you a story of one of my young people uh, when I was a youth pastor. 
When I said, man, it's time. You know the truth. You've been listening to me for three years. Why don't you turn and trust Christ? He says, you know what? I'm 16 years old. I want to live my life. Maybe later. It's been, I don't know, 30 years, 20-something years since him and I had that conversation. And every once in a while, I see him on Facebook, and I see he's married, he has children, he's, he's, he owns a little business, and he's doing well, but yet I wonder, does he know Christ? Has he lived his life to the fullest now, and he's ready yet? You cannot wait until the last moment. You are not guaranteed the, the opportunity of the thief on the cross at the deathbed confession. The apostle Paul warns, behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. There is somebody here today that if Christ were to come or if you were to die, you would not get into heaven. You don't know how to answer that question. If, I were to let you, if you were to die today, why should I let you into heaven? You would not have an answer. There's some of you that need to make that decision today. Why wait until tomorrow? Why wait another moment? Recognize that Christ has, re- has provided all that's required. It's the only gift that's worth giving. Dr. Schreiner goes on to encourage us at the same time, we should not say that our evil is so great that God could never forgive us. Satan whispers such word into our hearts to convince us not to give ourselves to the Lord. And why he does so, we must remember the great words of Jesus, who said, today with me, you'll be with me on paradise. Please do not think that, you got, that, that your sins, your evil is so great that God cannot forgive, that his mercy and his love and his grace is not large enough for his arms to reach around and cover you as the merciful king covered his older mother. Well, I guess his mother would be older than him, so that's redundant. But I had to put one Robinism in there for the message. Paul in Acts chapter 26 speaks of the words, you and I need to live in keeping with repentance. If you truly have been atoned by the death of Christ, your sins, if you truly have the righteousness of Christ, then you and I need to live as if we have. Our lives need to be impacted by the death of Christ. His passive and active obedience causing us to be active in living out. True repentance always manifests or is shown in itself in good works. We are not saved by works, as Paul said in Ephesians, but we are saved for good works. This was true of the criminal in the last few minutes of his life. He rebuked the other criminal who complained to Jesus, but the repentant criminal showed himself to be a different person by what he says. You see, the way that you and I talk, the way you and I live, demonstrates whether we have truly repented. But any change in our lives flows from trusting Christ. I urge you today, make that choice today. Choose Christ. Choose life. The thief repents because he believes that Jesus can save him. So I guess let's end with that. Do you believe that Jesus can save you? Or do you believe you're too far gone? Or do you believe that Jesus did not save you? Maybe you're even struggling if Jesus is a historical person. But let me come to you today. Today is the day of salvation. He holds out the reconciliation to you this morning. As you and I enter into this busy Christmas season and the coming of the new year, 
Let us not forget the wonderful words of Christ as he gave up his last, last breath. Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. Would you do the same this morning? Commit yourself to the Father for his glory and our good. May we do so on this day, December 10th, 2023. May we walk out different, impacted by the death of Christ. Psalms 86.5 has this. I leave this with you. For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in loving kindness to all who call upon you. Call upon him today, for he's ready to hear you. With every head bowed and every eye closed as Randy and the worship team makes their way up. Again, as my exhortation is, as it is every week for these last few years, I want you to take a moment to pause and consider this passage. One you hear every Easter, every Good Friday. This comes in the celebration of Christmas. I want you to hear it in a different way. The impact, the wonderful gift that Jesus Christ is willing to give those who trust in the Father's redemption plan. Would you do so today? Consider these truths. Would you then pray and lift up and ask the Holy Spirit to help you to understand how you are to respond? Maybe if it's the first time, is to say, I am a sinner. I put my trust in God. I want to be a Christian. If that's, your name, if that's it and you need more information, see Randy and, or uh, myself or Landon. We'd love to share with you how you can know. Maybe it's to follow him in believer's baptism. It's time to make that confession in front of others and say, I want to make a public confession of what Christ has done in my life. Maybe it's saying, hey, I want to join the community of believers here and want to be involved in, in, in sacrificing, serving the body of Christ as he's called us to. It might be just coming and saying, Lord, impact my life. Let me live in such a way that glorifies you, drawing others to you in any way you respond to how the Holy Spirit will be calling you today. Randy, would you come and close us in prayer? We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help hear the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.